From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Julie Farnham is my guest. She was the Assistant Director of Intelligence for the United States Capitol Police on January 6, 2021. Prior to joining the Capitol Police, she served with the Department of Homeland Security for over 15 years. She's the author of U.S. Immigration Laws Under the Threat of Terrorism, and her new book, Domestic Darkness, an Insider's Account of the January 6th Insurrection and the Future of Right-Wing Extremism. Julie Farnham, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed your book, and thank you for writing it. You're welcome. Um, you know, as we all know, our country is really insanely you know, divided politically into people who listen to my show and people who don't listen to my show. <laughs> No, I'm kidding, but uh, but we we are divided, and and it's not so much by opinions anymore as by beliefs. And I wonder if you have any idea how that happened. Yeah, it's unfortunate the way we've gone um, in our country and gone further and further left or right, and people really like stake their claims and have not demonstrated a willingness to work with others and to come find common ground and. We see that in Congress, especially in that they are really not functional anymore. I mean, they can't even pass a budget. And that's like basic duty for Congress. And they struggle with that. So, I mean, I, I don't think it happened overnight. I think a lot of it is driven by members of both parties who express you know, extremist views and really have um, taken on prominent roles in, in their parties. And they've gotten the votes. And I, some of it has to do with, too, they've taken fringe elements of our society. And every society always has their fringe elements and really brought them into the fold and saw them as like a legitimate voting block and tried to court their votes. And by doing that, you had to get more extreme. And that's unfortunate because those groups that they've brought in and that I talk about a lot in the book, um, they have extremist views and often is those views are based in hate and hate doesn't solve problems. It just creates more. You, you talk a little bit in your book about, I think it's your cousin who you were close with and you were Facebook friends with. And she said something like Democrats obviously don't love their children. Is that what she said? She, yeah. Something along those lines. And you said, well, uh, you know, you know me, I'm a Democrat and I love my children. And she said something like the truth is hard to face or something like that. Yes, Exactly. Um, and it's just so frustrating because like, you know, she's someone that I had admired so much growing up and she's just gone down the rabbit hole of like conspiracy theories and just um, devoid of like logic and like not based in reality. And so and I had hoped that, you know, me saying like, here is an example of someone, you know, personally that you are related to, to know that that statement is not factual and she still sides with like the crazies. And I was like, well, I, I don't know. Like, and that's hard to overcome too. When you have people who have gone so far down that rabbit hole, like you don't win them over with facts. And, and that's, and that's hard. That That is a key thing to what's going on um, in, since 2016, when uh, the, the, the term alternative facts Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the the idea that truth no longer matters 
is a very frightening uh, aspect of what we're up against. Yeah, that that is. And so, you know, the only thing I think the ways to combat that is, you know, trying to personalize it for the person. I think at some point they'll understand. I hope that they someday sometime understand that, you know, if they personalize it and they see that um, it impacts them and their families, but also looking at it from a perspective of like self-harm. Because if you adhere to some of these these ideologies, like it doesn't have a positive impact on your on your on your life. It it doesn't. Like when you adhere to some of these extremists, you know, it can cause a lot of problems in your life. So just the opposite. It's not helping you, it's hurting you. And so framing it that way, I hope there's some some hope that they can um see the light. Change there's, everything. Yeah, there seems to be a, a politically I think the people who are battling politically, it's as if they want power, but they don't want to actually govern. You're talking about, you know, not being able to pass a budget or whatever. Like, okay, when I was a kid, I'm a lot older than you, but when I was a kid, when the person who was elected president, whether it was Kennedy or Johnson or Nixon or Eisenhower, um, well, then they became the president. And in in our classrooms, we put their picture up and... Mm -hmm they got a chance to be president for a few years without uh, constantly being dragged down and not be, uh, you know, having their uh, powers locked out by uh, Congress, not putting forward their uh, Supreme court uh, choices or whatever. Yeah. I, I think some of it though has to do with like, their behavior generally, like they behave in a way that they're not demonstrating integrity. So like when someone does something bad, they have a responsibility as leaders in this country to speak out against that. And we see more and more often now people not doing that. Like, and and I think like, just go back a few years when John McCain was at that town hall with Barack Obama and someone asked a question that was very anti-Muslim and John McCain said, no, that's wrong. And then he said, that's, that's not true. Like we don't have that anymore. We don't have people in Congress for the most part, not everyone, but more people than should, than we should having that integrity to be able to say, this is not right. And we're not going to do that. And when people just let it slide and, you know, hateful comments, whatever it may be, um, that or anti-Semitic comments or, you know, comments that are sexist and not speak out against it, then it gives it, it allows it to be okay. But if somebody like Lynn Cheney, for instance, speaks out, then they get their power taken away from them and they get kicked out of Congress. Yeah. But again, by people who really lack integrity. Uh, Well, your, your book is called uh, Domestic Darkness an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection. And uh, Julie Farnham, you were there, you were, you know, uh, working that day uh, with the uh, Capitol Police, and you call it an insurrection in in the title of your book. So obviously, you are hold the belief that it was an insurrection. But the other day, I was looking at, you know, since I was reading your book and trying to try take some kind of devil's advocate view as we talk today. Um, I uh, read this article in the New York Times. It was an opinion piece by Ross Dothat. And his title of his article, and this was just a couple of weeks ago, while I was reading your book, 
um, why it wasn't an insurrection and why it's wrong to call it an insurrection. And he said, essentially, that, uh, well, the quote was, the angry mob mostly believed itself to be standing up for constitutional government against the purported chicanery of Biden's alleged fraud-enabled victory. Be I mean, in other words, their their beliefs were genuine and they weren't there to overthrow the United States government, but to aid the United States government, and therefore it wasn't an insurrection. Do you have any response yeah, to that? Yeah, um, I don't know if I would agree with that. Um, I don't think they were doing much to aid the U.S. government, particularly as they were calling for, you know, the killing of the vice president and others. Um, so I think that's stretching it a bit. Um, and also, you know, I what I saw there on January 6th, like it was it was intended or the people who were there were intending to stop a democratic process. And to me, that's that's an insurrection. Like we have a democracy and we certify the electoral votes um, even call, having Pence calling for Pence to make the decision um, to not certify, like then that would give Pence all the power in this whole country. And like one person does not get to have all the power. If that if that were the case, then we wouldn't be living in a democracy. So for th those two things alone, I think, say to me that, yes, it was an insurrection. And the insurrection, uh, Julie Farnham, was mostly your fault, according to a lot of people who... <laughs> <laughs> in some circles yes i have been told that once or twice <laughs> so did you feel that you were you know compelled uh, to write this book to sort of tell your side of the story yeah i did feel that way um i very much felt like that um you know after january 6th steve sund who was the chief of police he was forced to resign and he largely came out he wrote his own book his own book um talks largely about me and how much um I screwed up. And to that, I would just say, you know, one, and I've put this on Twitter, I've put the actual emails on Twitter showing that he received the intelligence assessment. So he had the information, but not to discount my own abilities, but I don't think I needed to be there for him to know that something bad was going to happen on January 6th. It was planned out in plain sight. It was all over the news. It was all over social media. Like I need not be there to tell him that something was going to happen. So the fact that he only had a one and a half page operational plan tells me he did not plan adequately and that's on him. And so he can, you know, do his smoke and mirrors and try to deflect the blame onto other people. But at the end of the day, he was the person in charge. He was the one who was making the operational plans. He's the one who had the power to cancel leave for the officers. He's the one who had the power to call in other people to assist that day. And he did none of those things. So that's his failure, not mine. Well, let's go back a little bit, uh, Julie Farnham, and tell me, how did you get in a position to uh, advise and how, you know, what was your job exactly? And how did it happen that you got there? Um, bad life choices. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can't hold on to a job, apparently. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I was with Homeland Security for a little over 15 years, working most of that time at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And they are self-funded, or at least they were when I was there. Mm -hmm. So they don't get government money. And during the pandemic, they were really struggling and they were furloughing a lot of people, myself included. Um, and so I I have bills like I needed I needed to I, I needed money. I, I needed a paycheck. And so I applied for a job at the Capitol Police and I got the job. 
And I took the job right before the presidential election in 2020. So <laughs> not the ideal time. My timing was a bit off. Um, so that's how I got into it. Um, and then when I started, I was told that the team needed a complete overhaul. And when I got there, it was it was in rough condition. I only had 11 analysts. Some of them had been there 10, 15 years None of them had received any formal intelligence training. They were very siloed. They didn't speak to others in the department. They didn't speak to other law enforcement agencies or members of the intelligence community. They produced, you know, very poor quality products. Um, and they didn't have a whole, not, not everyone, but many of them really didn't have um, the desire to like really learn or to excel at their jobs. And I came in and I shook things up. Um, change is hard. I understand that. But the mission is so important for the Capitol Police and for my intelligence division. And the stakes are so high. Like I had no choice but to shape things up and make changes. Well, what was your job description coming in? Um, so I was hired at the same time as a director and they had never had an assistant director. They hired someone from NYPD to be the director. Um, and so my job was to handle like the operational, like day-to-day operations of the team, of the intelligence team, to make sure they were collecting the intelligence, that they were writing the assessments, um, that that in a nutshell. Most of our time, I know there's so much focus on the intelligence assessment ahead of January 6th, but most of our time was actually spent dealing with threats against members of Congress. And there were tens of thousands of threats in the three years that I was there, almost three years that I was there. So people would, you know, this would be like people writing a letter or sending an email saying, you suck, or I'm going to hit you with a brick or what? Um, Yeah, it would be mostly, most of the threats come on social media now, um, mm. those keyboard warriors, and they'll say, you know, I want to kill so-and-so, or, you know, I'm going to burn your house down, or, you know, awful things. Um, And all members of Congress, for the most part, get threats. Some of them can be quite serious. So as it pertains to like social media, a lot of times you need to figure out, well, who owns this account and have they made other threats? Um, And so that would be my job to investigate that and oversee the team investigating those. And so you, you shook things up and that didn't go over all that well, but what, what did you see in advance of, of, I almost said 9-11, but I mean, um, do people make that mistake all the time? January 6th. What what did you see uh, and what did you tell your um, colleagues about it? Yeah, we saw a lot of social media postings, a lot of them saying that um, people were going to come armed on January 6th, that there would be large groups of people coming, that members of extremist groups would be there. And so in addition to the intelligence assessment that I wrote that said, you know, Congress was going to be the target, I also provided close to 70 pieces of raw intelligence to the Capitol Police leadership ahead of that. Um, So they were very well informed of what was coming. um, And unfortunately, they didn't listen. But even that morning on January 6th, so there were two rallies um, that morning, one at the Ellipse, which is the one the president spoke at. And next to the ellipse, and the ellipse is right next to the White House, next to the ellipse is um, an area called Freedom Plaza. And both of those places are about 16 blocks away from the Capitol. And you'd walk down the National Mall up to the Capitol. And we knew that there were probably about twenty-five to 30,000 people down there. 
and that they were probably going to head up to the Capitol after. We also knew that ahead of the security screening to get in to see where the president was speaking, there were a lot of attended unattended backpacks. So that told me that there was something in those backpacks that wouldn't make it through security. And I relayed that information on the morning of January 6th to the Capitol Police leadership. So they they had fair warning. You, you noticed a pattern heading toward there where, uh, you know, prior to the 6th, that a lot of people were requesting permits in areas sort of surrounding the Capitol. So it would look as though there would be small uh, gatherings when, in fact, it was all part of one master plan to get a big crowd there? Yeah, I think some of that. Um, at the time, because we were still in the pandemic, certain areas that would normally be open for demonstrations were closed. So there was a limited number of areas that were available for demonstrations. The Capitol Police also had a cap of 50 people per area because of the pandemic. So, yes, there were a lot of permits um around the Capitol, that wouldn't necessarily be unusual because whenever there's like a big event, whether it be, you know, inauguration or the March for Life or whatever, you know, big things going on in D.C., most of those permit areas are um, reserved. The issue was, is that we knew, or at least I knew, two of those areas, um, and I think there were eight or nine areas total that had demonstrations scheduled for the six. We had some intelligence to indicate that they were affiliated with the Stop the Steal movement. And why Stop the Steal didn't just request the permits on their own, I don't know, but they were advertising it on their website that they would have a rally there. And I raised those concerns. I put it in writing to Capitol Police leadership. They um, allowed the permit to remain approved. Um, and then the January 6th Select Committee found actually another one of those. So three in total permits were associated with Stop the Steal. But at the time beforehand, I only knew of two. Well, looking at you, I can tell, because I'm very perceptive, that you're a woman. And yes. also, <laughs> you mentioned previously that you're a Democrat. So do you think those two uh, things affected the way your news or your uh, uh, your projections were received in some way? Um, and I don't know if I've mentioned that I'm a Democrat. I am though, but <laughs> we were talking about your cousin. Oh, that's right. That's right. You're right. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> um, yes. Um, yeah. So I do think, I think more the woman than the Democrat, there's plenty of Democrats on Capitol Hill, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, but I think more so of being a woman, I think as a woman, uh, your voice isn't necessarily heard or you're not necessarily taken seriously. I think in the aftermath of January 6th, too, where Sun particularly tried to peg what happened on me, I think he did that because he thought that I wouldn't fight back. And I think I think if I had been a man, he wouldn't have made that assumption. Um, he found out the hard way that I would, but um, yeah, yeah, I think he made that assumption. And I, you know, I had only met him a couple times beforehand because I had only been on the job 72 days. And, you know, in those few times that I met him, like I was polite, I was quiet, I can be a little bit shy. Um, so I think he made the wrong assumption that I was a pushover and that he could blame it on on me and he would like the criticism would be deflected away from him. And I fought back. <laughs> and and wrote a book about it. Yes. And a, and a very good book that I, I really enjoyed a lot. And I just remind people that book is called 
Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future right-wing extremism. And the author, my guest here, Julie Farnham. Uh, Julie, um, there's a thing that happened in my lifetime, which is a sort of a switch between ideas that are left-wing turning into right-wing ideas, like uh, the deep state or the conspiracy theory ideas. I remember when, you know, after the Kennedy assassination in, in the late 60s, when a guy named Mark Lane wrote a book called Rush to Judgment about the the Warren Commission. And that was kind of a, a big left-wing thing, question authority and all that. And now it is a completely right-wing thing. And conspiracy theories are dominated by QAnon and and right-wing ideas. Uh, do you have a theory of how that transformation happened? I don't know. That's interesting, actually. That's an interesting question. I mean, as I talk about in the book, conspiracy theories and politics, they are, they've existed forever. And I give some histor historical um, examples with like, you know, President Jackson and some of the conspiracies around him. So they've existed for a long time. I think it really just depends on like, which way the political winds are blowing. And um, I'm sure some of the the conspiracy theories we have now will switch back to, you know, the left at some point in the future. They're cyclical. So um, they're going to be conspiracies always, um, whether they're right or left or both or switching back and forth. I think, you know, unfortunately, they are a part of our lives and have have permeated politics for decades. Do you think that there is a threat uh, that uh, of artificial intelligence because now we hear this thing the other day that there was uh, deep fake calls uh, robo calls from president biden who of course was not the person making the call uh, as as a intelligence officer do you see that as a threat i think it can be i think it can also be as as it pertains to disinformation i mean we've seen foreign governments particularly russia really um use disinformation of effectively and use it to divide the United States. Um, and so they have social media profiles at all and they have trolls and they have like real people behind these profiles and they'll foster these profiles for years. So they look legitimate, but they will specifically seek out um, hot bot button issues and try to create division in it. And they're quite good at it. And I think they're very good at playing the long game in that um, they'll sow these seeds of dissent within the United States and then let the people in the U.S. like destroy themselves from within. Um, and it weakens us as a country. And so AI is just another tool that makes that easier for people who want to spread disinformation. You talk, uh, you draw a distinction in your book between disinformation and misinformation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, disinformation is information that the person who's posting it or sending it knows is wrong and they're doing it to to for some malicious reason. Misinformation is information that someone reads and believes to be true, even though it's false. So disinformation eventually becomes misinformation. I was reading recently that President Kennedy, when he was running for president, when he was Senator Kennedy, uh, used one of his uh, campaign strategies was to talk about a missile gap between American and uh, Russian military. 
and he was then briefed by the intelligence or military, whatever, that there really isn't a gap. I mean, if there is a gap, it's their gap that we have way more missiles than they do and that there really isn't a missile gap. And then he continued to campaign on his missile gap uh, <laughs> uh, policy anyway, even though he had been told clearly that it was untrue. So that would be an example of disinformation. disinformation. Yes. <laughs> and so I guess that's something politicians do all the time. I mean, it's not, that's nothing new. Right. Exactly. They do. It's when we have what, what concerns me is when we have foreign influence trying to do it here in the United States and people don't recognize that. Have you noticed that people are reluctant to use the word lie or liar when talking about uh, disinformation? Yeah, I do think so. But I mean, the, as you alluded to earlier in the, in our conversation that, you know, facts and like alternative facts and you know calling out things that aren't true like there's there's just things that should be very black and white are now just shades of gray and i don't know where we lost our way but we have (laughs) (laughs) in in the title of your book you talk about the future of right-wing extremism and we're uh, when we're recording this interview, we're recording it a couple of weeks before you people out there listening are hearing it. Um, and so uh, right now we're the we're right after the New Hampshire primary. Do you have a, a a theory about what will happen in November? In November, I mean, it, it looks like it's going to be a matchup between Biden and Trump. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Like. I wor- I do worry about the election. I do worry about people committing violent acts, although I think it would probably take a different form. I would think the bigger threat now is a lone wolf and someone targeting an elected official or candidate for office. And I think that happens at all levels of the government from, you know, local, state, federal levels. So that worries me a lot. You know, I don't think we're going to have another January 6th. The Capitol Police are going to be ready because that's the threat they know now. And um, they are not going to want to fail twice on that front. They're ready for that, but they're not ready for whatever actually happens. Yeah, and it's true. And I just wrote an op-ed that got published earlier this week. And this is today's the January 25th that we're recording this. Um, And it talks about, like, you know, what the Capitol Police need to do to really be prepared for the next threat the threat that they don't know. And part of it is, you know, only 10 members of Congress get protective details. This is publicly known. Um, And so, you know, you have 525 other people who don't, and they're kind of left to fend for themselves. And a lot of them do receive threats. So maybe it's an issue of splitting protection of people and protection of buildings and making them separate. Have the Capitol Police focus on protecting the members of Congress and then have, you know, the Sergeant in Arms office or the U.S. Marshals, or some some other entity, protect the buildings and handle the protection of the buildings. And then I think the other part of it is is looking at the Capitol Police's culture, because after January sixth, there were a whole bunch of recommendations that came out to improve the Capitol Police, but they were very like concrete things, like write a policy on this, you know, get training on that, get equipment for this, but it didn't really get to the core of like the cultural issues that caused the Capitol Police to fail. That includes, you know, um, trust issues, communication issues, um, valuing employees. And until those cultural issues get addressed, there is going to be another failure. 
So why didn't you stay there? Did they fire you? Did you quit? What happened? Uh, I quit under the threat of getting fired for writing this book. Um, He got a hold of the book. I had to have the book cleared by the agencies that held my security clearance. I did not have an obligation to provide it to the Capitol Police beforehand. But one of those agencies that I had given the manuscript to shared it with Capitol Police. And um, shockingly, they were not happy (laughs) with the book. Uh So so I quit because uh, they were going to fire me anyways. Did you consider not publishing the book and keeping your job? No. That was okay, never. That was not a choice. That was not a choice. I could. I mean, that that was a choice. It's just not a choice I was willing to make. It was too important to me to get the truth out rather than to stay silent. You're a whistleblower from the Capitol Police, would you say? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, Is, uh, 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 any regrets about that? No, I mean, it has not been an easy journey at all. Like it's been, it's been really, really hard um, as I imagine it is for other whistleblowers, but like to hear the narrative of January 6th being manipulated for political gain really like bothered me because I was there, I saw it. And to have people who were there too with me not acknowledge like what an awful day that was and like how bad that was and what damage it did to our democracy that was so frustrating. And so like being quiet was not going to be an option for me. I had, I had to write this book. Were you called to testify before the committee investigating? Yes. Yes, I was. Um, So that one of my interviewed with them twice, one of my interviews is transcribed and is available on their website. Uh, You weren't on TV. I was not on TV. No, (laughs) mine was closed door. (laughs) And, and how did you feel about that, about it being closed door? Did you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I don't have an opinion one way or the other. Like, I understand, you know, their their hearings that were public had, you know, a very specific narrative and things that they were trying to show the American people. But I feel fortunate that I did have the opportunity to be interviewed. And also it is in the final report. So it's in Appendix 1, which talks about the intelligence and, you know, I think they they got it right and they acknowledged that the intelligence was there and that it was provided to the Capitol Police and they failed to act on it. Well, so now, you know, because you and I are both human beings. So give me the sort of human being aspect of what it was like when you, you know, you got up that morning and you knew you were going to go there and, you know, did you, you were still working then. And uh, what or when I was going to testify. Yeah. And what what did you wear and what was it like? Uh, I don't actually remember what I wore, but <laughs> um, I do remember what I wore on January 6th, but I don't remember what I wore when I was testifying. Um, it was okay. It was fine. Capitol Police had an attorney there with me, um, but I also brought my own attorney um, because I was going to say what I needed to say, and I really didn't care. Like, um, it better to have my own attorney there to help me with the follow-up if necessary, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, and I was there. It took almost three hours for the transcribed interview. It was a long interview, but I think, uh, you know, I was honest with them. I admitted, you know, when I could have done, there are things that I could have done better. And I admit those in the book too. Like I'm not trying to sugarcoat things or try to like make me look, um, paint me in the best light. There are definitely things that I include in the book that, I could have done differently and to have credibility, I needed to show the truth warts and all. 
Did they ask you all the questions that you wanted to answer or were there things you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to because they didn't ask? Um, I think they hit on the topics that I wanted to discuss. Um, I was really concerned about, and they did ask about this, about just like the dysfunction that I inherited with the team. Like it was hard. It was really hard. Of those 11 analysts that I had initially, six of them I either terminated or otherwise pushed out. And that's like, that's half the team, but they really needed to go. And, you know, to terminate someone in the federal government is not easy to do. And like, of course, I wanted to give them the opportunity to improve and give them the training. Um, But some of them were just unwilling to to take that opportunity and they didn't want to change. And so, you know, I I did what I had to do, but it was hard. Like I had a lot of resistance inside the Capitol Police from certain people that I talk about in the book. Um, They filed all sorts of complaints with the Office of Inspector General against me, of which they were all dismissed. Um, Then they filed lawsuits against me. Those were dismissed as well with prejudice. And then when all of those other things failed, then they went to the media and really attacked my, um, my reputation. And that was hard to deal with. Like, just on a personal level, it was hard to deal with. Yeah. I mean, uh, you talk in the book about changing someone's schedule and they didn't want their schedule changed and they kind of went over your head and then they didn't back you. They didn't change their guy's schedule. Is that what happened? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were a small team, as I said. And so sometimes like people's schedules had to change based on the needs of the department. And we're a police department, too. So it's not like we work nine to five jobs. Like it's a 24 hour operation and with such a small team. And so um, I had to change someone to the evening shift instead of the morning shift. And she got pretty upset over that. um, And she ended up keeping her morning shift. And then that led me to like force someone else to have to move. So, I mean, she was really hurting her teammates more than she was hurting me. Yeah. It it sounds awful. (laughs) It wasn't fun. (laughs) Um, And uh, what did you get job? Did you have some job satisfaction when you were there? Did you go, Oh, I've done this and it feels good. Or was that, was it never like that? I mean, I feel like when I left that when I left the Capitol Police, it was in it was in pretty good shape. Like I had hired many, many more people. When I left it, we had over 50 employees. So I grew the team. I had reviewed all the policy documents. I wrote more policy documents where there were gaps. Um, I got them all training. Um, I I obtained new technologies to help aid with like the work that we were doing. I hired supervisors. And so, you know, I really like grew the team and the team was a functional team when I left. And the people I hired were fabulous people and like really knowledgeable and skilled. And so, yeah, I did. I I wouldn't necessarily say like I loved that job and I was satisfied with that. But I think I did what I needed to do to be successful there. Let me just ask you a little bit about immigration, because you worked at, at Homeland Security and you wrote a book about immigration. And that is the thing that right-wing, and not just right-wing, but Republicans in general, always come back to over and over again is immigration. That's the biggest problem. And is it the biggest problem? No, not not, not at all. I mean, yeah. I know the concept of like the great replacement, which is used by a lot of white supremacist groups. 
um, and it, that whole concept. And it's used to like instill fear fear in people. But the the issue with immigration and particularly with, you know, the Republicans, immigration is not an issue for the president to solve, regardless of who the president is. It's not Biden's issue. It's not Trump's issue. It wasn't any other president's issue. It's an issue for Congress to solve. And they could solve it. They spend a whole lot of time pointing fingers about at other people who should be solving it, whether it be Homeland Security or the president. Um, and Alejandro Mayorkas, who's the chief, uh, the head of um, Homeland Security now, he used to be my supervisor. He used to be my boss. Because he used to be the head of um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So, yeah, it's really Congress's issue to solve. And I think to solve it, um, maybe this is going to be your next question. But <laughs> How do you solve it? <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be a few things. One, Congress needs to look at the asylum process in the United States. So when someone comes to the border, just to give people like foundational knowledge, when someone comes to the border and says, I want asylum, they have something called a credible fear hearing or reasonable fear hearing if they had previously been removed. And that's just a general screening to see if they're if they're if they have a potential asylum claim. And then if they're found to have credible fear, then they can proceed to apply for asylum. But that process, most people are approved. And so like it's almost like just like a bureaucratic step. And like, why are we doing that? And why not streamline it? Just let people apply for asylum. Um, but give them a shorter window to apply because right now they have up to a year to apply from the time they enter. So once they have their credible fear, reasonable fear hearing, they're usually released. And that gives them a year to like, or, or longer because whenever their court hearing is in immigration court to just like hang out in the country. So just shorten that process. So that whole process needs to get addressed. And then you need to look at um, what's causing people to come to the United States in the first place and address those sorts of issues. Um, the border, I've been down to the border. I've been, I've been in the border. I've been on both sides of the border. Um, and I've been to the Northern border too. So, you know, like that it's, there's always going to be people trying to cross the border, but you know, how, how, how many people who are there depends on why people are trying to leave their countries. So address that. And then the last thing I will say is, you know, I worked on Pete Buttigieg's campaign when he was running for president and I helped with his immigration policy. And he had a good policy, not like I'm obviously biased because I helped write the policy, but the policy had to do with like long term solutions to people who are here, who are here now unlawfully and giving them a path to citizenship and it included things like making sure that they um, had paid tax taxes for a number of years or they had military service or, you know, a graduate degree. There were like seven things in total. And that's what I think we need to do to look at this problem long term, because we can't do something like Reagan did in the 1980s with the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA. That's traditionally called amnesty, where he took like, you know, large groups of people and just made them legal. Um, or the Congress at the time, and he signed it into law. Uh, but that, you know, if we do that, you know, 40 years from now, we're going to have the same problem where we have like, you know, millions of people who are here unlawfully. We need to have a permanent solution to address people who are here in the country unlawfully. Well, uh, on the one hand, you said that the president can't do anything about immigration. And on the other hand, you said you helped write Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign to solve immigration. 
Yeah. It would require his, I mean, like his, his solutions would require congressional action. Like those things to give that path to pathway to citizenship would require Congress to act. Well, as a person in law enforcement, can you, um, can you uh, shed light on the idea? Uh, I, I don't remember who it was, but I heard a politician say, they're not sending us their best. They're sending us their rapists and their criminals and so forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, uh, have, have more crimes in the United States been committed by illegal Mexican immigrants than um, other people? Uh, n- n- no, <laughs> Americans have plenty of their own criminals. Um, and I would say that those, you know, rapists and drug dealers and whatever from whatever country, uh, those are the exception rather than the rule. The vast, vast majority of the immigrants that I've encountered during, you know, my nearly 20 years you know, working in the government, they're just people who want opportunity and like want a job and like feed their kids and like want to be safe, like real basics of like human existence. And so when we keep that in mind, then they're not, they're not that bad. Well, given that, why is it a problem if there are millions or hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants? Why, why do we need to worry about it? Well, I mean, it's two ways. One, I wouldn't necessarily frame it as a problem. I think people frame it as a problem for political reasons. And this whole like fear mongering, like they're taking our jobs and this and that, and they're using our services. I think they're doing jobs. They're doing jobs. They're often underpaid for doing the jobs that they're doing. And people talk about, you know, agricultural workers and things like that. Like if I have to start paying $7 for a head of lettuce, everyone's going to be upset, you know, myself included. So they're doing a job and they're doing it cheaply. And we can argue whether or not, you know, they should be paid more. But um, so I think, I think that's the concern. And really it's, it's not necessarily an issue. The issue becomes like, how do they have like dignity and make sure that they're not lost? Because a lot of times they're not going to um, report crimes or they're not going to, um address like issues that are harmful to their safety because they're afraid. And like, when we hear this political rhetoric about them, then that's, that's a problem. So the problem isn't having them here. The problem is having them here illegally for them. It's their, it's in their interest that they be legal. Yeah. And I think like I've yet to meet an unlawful immigrant who was like, yeah, I want to be illegal forever. Like, no, none of them want to be illegal. <laughs> like, they all want to get their green card and they all want to be full full members of our, our society. Uh, and you wrote a book about it. That book was called um, Immigration Laws Under the... What, yeah, U.S. Immigration Laws Under the Threat of Terrorism. Yeah, I wrote that a while ago. It was really about how immigration laws changed after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, because there were pretty significant immigration law changes in re- in response to that terrorist attack before the World Trade Center came down right. officially. So I looked at that. Um, and then, of course, after 9-11. That was your fault, too. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you uh, envision yourself uh, running for office? Are you do you have political ambitions now that you've got your feet? I am running for office now, actually. <laughs> yes. what, and what office are you running for? 
Arlington, Virginia County Board. So just local office. But, you know, there is Arlington is very divided as well. And, you know, on the micro level, I have kids here and I want to see the community thrive into the future. But on the bigger level, like I saw just how divided our country is and how politicians can be really divided. And like, I don't want that in my community. And so rather than just complain about it, I thought, well, I'm going to throw my hat into the ring. And as a parent in a local community, are you want to, do you go over to the school and do you make sure that they're not make, letting those kids read those terrible books? <laughs> I'm okay with them reading those terrible books. <laughs> yeah, no, but I would definitely fight. Ar- Arlington's pretty liberal, so fortunately we haven't had to deal with too much of that. But, you know, if there was a push to ban certain books, I would probably be very vocal in opposition to that. Do you send your kids to public school? I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you wouldn't rather homeschool them and teach them? Uh, a, no. No, I mean, like, like my background in Intel, like I've dealt with so many like nasty people and terrorists and things like that. And then I go to my kid's school and I'm like, oh, I could never be a teacher. This is so hard. So <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll take the crazy and the violent people all day long. But like, I could never do the job. So parents were like, well, we need to have a say. Like, unless you have a degree in education, you do not need to have a say. You need to let the people who know what they're doing do their job. I was a teacher for 30 oh. years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, leave it to the professionals. I, I don't I, like, I don't even know how they do multiplication anymore. It's hard, but. <laughs> it's hard. No, well, I personally equate, you know, homeschooling with home surgery or home dentistry, but that's just me. Yeah, no, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I will leave it to the professionals. And And so when is the election that you're running for? Is that in November or before then? Uh, there's a primary June 18th, so I will have to win the primary. Okay. Well, good luck with that. And, okay. uh, <laughs> and is this a political affiliation you're running as a Democrat or, uh, I'm running as a moderate Democrat, which can be a hard sell in Arlington. Um, he's being a centrist. There's not a lot of centrists here in Arlington. Um, but I want to use like common sense and be practical. And so, um, hopefully that will resonate with voters. Do you think, you know, there's a lot of talk now about uh, a potential second term for President Trump as being the end of democracy, that he will declare himself God or something, and that there w- that would be the end of the democratic process in America. And do you think that that is a, a potential reality? Do you take that seriously? I do. I do. Um, he has said that he would be a dictator, at least on day one, he said. Uh, so I do. And then just his behavior after the last election and not accepting the results, he still hasn't conceded that he lost the previous election. Right. And so that says to me that he wants he likes power and he wants to be in power. I mean, the only thing he's got going for him is that he's old. And so even if he eliminates, you know, term limits or what have you. He's old. He's not going to be there for that long, but that would still do a tremendous amount of damage to this country. Uh, well, um, the, the book is called, let me say it again, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. And the author is Julie Farnham, future uh board of what is it county (laughs) board it's like it's like city council but we're a county not a city well do you you think you'll eventually be uh the um governor senator vice president president well i gotta get through county board and it's 
<laughs> painting is hard. It is really hard. Is that? Did you see yourself as a political candidate before you took this job at the Capitol Police? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I've always liked politics, um, but it wasn't until the past couple of years that I had really thought about running. And now that I find myself in the situation I'm in, I'm like, I, it's now or never, like, I'm going to do it. But campaigning is hard, like fund, it's all and this is maybe this is one of the issues with, with our structure of government, you know, running for office is like 80% fundraising. And you spend so much time fundraising and that like, I hate asking people for money. Like, it's just miserable for me. And um, I'd rather go out and talk to people in the community and hear what they have to say and like, hear what concerns them. And like, I've done a lot of that too, but to win, you have to raise money. But like, what I really want to do is like, talk to the people and represent the people. So that's, that's what's hard for me. Yeah, our process has changed so much. I mean, it costs so much money. I mean, it kind of, um, you know, if somebody comes along and wants your job and they have a whole lot more money, they want the position that you're running for and they have a whole lot more money, then they'll probably be able to um, beat you. Right, exactly. So it comes down to money and that's unfortunate. That doesn't sound like a good democratic process. No. You should write a memo, see if you can change it. Well, I will try really, really hard <laughs> to <laughs> scrap together what I can and put up a good campaign. But I hope people recognize that, like, I'm in it because I want to do it for them and not for, like, power or authority or anything like that. You must have a website where people can support your campaign. It's julieforarlington.com. So when, when, when people were responding to you with criticism when you had your assistant director position... Did did they? Is that what you think they were thinking? Oh, she just wants power and she wants to push us around, or? Um. Yeah. Some of, like those employees that I terminated. Yeah, I think some of them definitely thought that, and I tried to articulate to them like, no, we have all these, you know, things that we have to do. Part of it was, and I talk about it in the book too, is that particularly with the threat cases, they were very accustomed to just sending those over to the investigations division investigations division, and they're the special agents, they're the ones, the criminal investigators, so they're going to prepare for prosecution, things like that. Like, they're super understaffed as well. And so to the to the extent that we could do the legwork for them and gather up all the intelligence related to the threat and then pass it over to them, and all they need to do is, you know, get the subpoena and then present it for prosecution, that's what we should be doing. We should be working hand-in-hand hand with our counterparts within the departments and that was like revolutionary to some of these employees and like, well, I don't, we've never done this before. Why are we doing this now? It's like, well, because we should be doing it and we should have always been doing it. And so they um, didn't necessarily understand that like I needed to do that. They also thought, you know, and like, uh, this is not unique to me or to any supervisor, but I think employees who are not performing well think that their supervisors love to like have these difficult conversations with them and like performance issues. Like I hate it. And I don't know any supervisor who is like, yeah, let's go have that conversation about how this bad performance. No, it's not like that at all. Like it's miserable. It's miserable. But I did it because I needed to do it. And we needed like we just needed a functioning team. And did you have to sit down and fire people face to face or could you just send them a pig slip or what? 
Uh, no, the process at the Capitol Police is they'll get something from our chief counsel's office, a letter saying that they have five days to appeal before it's presented to the chief of police. Um, and um, if they don't do that, it's presented to the chief of police. And if he agrees, then the termination goes to the Capitol Police Board. So it's like a very involved process and the Capitol Police Board then um, can say yes, no, or take no action. They have 30 days to do that. So when those employees too think like, oh, it was me, I was like, well, I had to work with HR. I had to work with chief counsel's office. The chief of police had to sign off on it. The whole police board needed to sign off on it. It was like me, not not me doing it unilaterally. There was a whole bunch of people in that process. Well, that's very interesting. So you couldn't just say you're fired. You had to no. Not at all. And then just and to get to that point, to give them a termination letter, I had to have like reams of paper and documentation showing like I offered them training. I counseled them. They were put on a performance improvement plan. All of that. And if a if a person is fired, does that mean they don't get their pension and those kinds of things? Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it works. Um, I assume so, but I'm not sure exactly. Well, uh, there's so many interesting little details, uh, and, and thank you for for indulging all of my crazy questions. I appreciate no, it. No, I like your questions. Uh, so the book, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism, and Julie Farnham is the author. And thank you so much for talking to me on From the Bookshelf. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.